Reaching the New York Times bestseller list is a huge achievement and major aspiration for most authors, but it's certainly no accident. To get there, you have to be doing something right. And what that is, I want to find out. I'm Graham Cochran, and in each episode of How to Become a New York Times bestselling author, I'm having conversations with some of my personal favorite authors, all of whom have reached the pinnacle, as I seek to learn exactly what steps they took and what strategies they implemented in order to get their books to the top of the writing world. And more importantly, to get their message out to the most people possible. And if you'd like to support me and my author journey, you can pre-order my book now, How to Get Paid for What You Know, at Amazon or wherever you buy books. I'm even giving away $100 worth of pre-order bonuses if you take your receipt to grahamcochran.com book and enter it there, including the first two chapters of the book you can read instantly and a bunch of other amazing content. So support me, it would mean a lot, grahamcochran.com book. Now, today's guest is Cal Newport. Now, Cal is a computer science professor at Georgetown University. He's also a New York Times bestselling author of seven books, including A World Without Email, Digital Minimalism, and Deep Work. In addition to his books, he's a regular contributor to The New Yorker, The New York Times, and Wired, a frequent guest on NPR, and the host of the popular Deep Questions podcast. And a man after my own heart, he's been publishing articles on his website, calnewport.com, and to his email subscribers for over a decade. Now, Cal and I sat down recently, and in our conversation, he shared how he landed his first book deal while he was still in college, all based on a dare. How it took him 10 years of writing books before he ever became a bestseller. He shares the two-step formula for creating a best-selling nonfiction book. The biggest mistake authors make when deciding what content to put in their book. Why he thinks self-publishing has become even less relevant as online content has proliferated and why growing his email list was critical to hitting the New York Times bestseller list. Can I get an amen for email lists? Cal is brilliant, sneaky funny, and I really enjoyed my conversation with him, and I know you will too. So sit back, relax, take notes, and enjoy this powerful conversation with Cal Newport. All right, Cal, thanks for jumping on the show with us today and being here. I'm excited to talk to you, my I man. Know, it's, it's my pleasure. You know, I was just watching the Rays game last night, so I'm in a Tampa mood, so this is good. Yes, good for you. That's what I want to hear. I appreciate that. Yeah, man, I feel like uh, I feel like we finally got some respect in 2020 last year, uh, especially with Tom Brady coming down. So we got the Lightning one and the Bucks one. And all my friends used to think, where's Tampa? Like, I know Miami. Like where I know Orlando, so thank you. That, that validates me yeah, some, in my, my my city. Tampa respect. Here we go. <laughs> Absolutely, dude. Well, dude, I'm excited to talk to you for a couple reasons. I think I told you before we started recording. You and I share a lot of values that I mean, you, you don't know. We have, this is our first time really being able to talk. But when I read your books, I see a lot of the things that you're writing about. That I'm like, dude, this is what I'm talking about on my podcast. This is what I'm teaching my students. This is what I value in my own life as an entrepreneur. And one of those areas being, like, being super focused and being super efficient with my work, so that it it's not filling up every nook and cranny of my week and and all this kind of stuff. So whether it's a combination of deep work or digital minimalism, or even your latest, I've been starting to read this year, World Without Email. Um, I'm like, yes, this is my man. And so what's crazy to me, though, is that we're the exact same age. Ah. We're 38. And I'm like, who is this guy 
who is this guy that's my because I, I just think about my own world. I'm like you're a professor, you've written multiple books, New York Times bestselling author. Um, but what's unique is I think I first heard of you with your TED talk about why well, you don't need social media, and I was like, oh my gosh. I like this guy, but it seems rare to see someone in our generation talking about that. So um, what I think fa is fascinating, you, you're kind of like you're talking about social media. You don't need it. You're talking about all these different things. But in digital minimalism, I think you summed up what I feel like is a lot of what your message is when you describe what digital minimalism is. When you say it's a philosophy of technology use in which you focus your online time on a small number of carefully selected, optimized activities that strongly support things you value. I love that part. And then here's the part that gets me. And then happily miss out on everything else. Now, I love this, but my question for you is like, do you ever feel like you are missing out? Like, do you ever, you write that, and I, I'm sure you believe it because I do, but do you ever have that sneaky feeling that like, man, am I missing out on something? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, first of all, I think I am the last person from our generation to not have a social media account. So, so I don't know if I get, there's some distinction. It's like last the Mohicans, but it's going to be, you know, last of the non Instagram users. There'll be a, a, a movie about me one day. <laughs> um, I don't worry that much about missing out. What I worry about is not spending enough time on the things I already know are really important because I see this as in mathematical terms, the activities in your life, the value they return are distributed on something like a power law. So there's like a small number of things to return a huge amount of value to you, and then a lot of things to return a smaller amount of value. And so if what you're trying to do is just maximize the value received in your day, mathematically speaking, you want to spend as much time as possible on these small number of things that you know for sure are really important. Because what happens is if you divert some of that energy to less valuable things, it just because it's interesting or who knows, or maybe I'm missing out, that's time that you're getting much less value than if you're doing the more valuable thing. So I am much more worried about not spending enough times on the things I know for sure that are valuable. I think we overplay in our culture right now this idea that, oh, there's something popping off over there that if I miss out on, I'm going to be missing out on a, an opportunity to make my life really good. That's not really the way a deep, meaningful life is cultivated. It tends to be more intentional and systematic. You pretty quickly uncover the things that are important to you, and then you have the long march of trying to reconfigure your experience around those. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I 100% agree. I, it is hard when the screaming voices are saying you are missing out, you are missing out, and the entire world is engineered, literally the software is engineered to tell you that you're missing out and kind of lie to you. But as someone who, I mean, if you're a professor and you're an author now, and that became a career path for you, which we're going to break down a bit in this episode, that, that kind of work takes focus, right? Like you probably don't have a choice. Like you need to be intentional about your time, I'm assuming. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've spent basically the last, what would it be now, 15 years or more of my life focused very diligently on two things, uh, my academic computer science research and writing. I, I made a decision at some point in college, in college, okay, this is where I'm going to put my chips down. It's going to take a while probably to get the rewards, but I want to keep focused on those two things. And so in my senior year of college is when I signed my first book deal, and I went right out of college into computer science graduate school. So right at that age, it's 21, 22, uh, there I was at MIT doing hardcore training to be an academic computer scientist, and I had a deal with Random House to be an author, and I just stayed focused. And the, the, there's something that really inspired me early on was Steve Martin had this professional memoir called Born Standing Up. So it was a memoir that was just about his career, right? How did my career unfold? 
And he talked about in it, and this was probably 2006 or 2007 when this came out, so early in, early in my career. He talked about diligence as being important. And he defined diligence to be not just sticking with something, but also consistently saying no to other things. And in his world, he had mm. the comedy and his banjo playing. He's stuck at it year after year, keep pushing himself. And so that was the model I adopted. I just put my head down and said, I want to get after it. So as, for example, as social media made this big push between 2010 and 2014 to be a ubiquitous cultural presence, I was much more immune to that particular technological contagion because I was so in a head down mode of, I want to be better at these things. I want to do this thing better, just pushing my, myself on those things. I was in my bunker while all of these digital bombs were going off in the sky above me. And, and it took awesome. about a decade before these efforts really paid off into really good things. I, I wrote a bunch of books before I was writing best-selling, you know, hardcover idea books that were making the list and writing for The New Yorker. That took a long time to get there. And it was a decade before I was a professor and tenured and writing, you know, known in my field. It took a lot of work, uh, but I think it necessitated that work. Uh, I love that. I love that so much. Um, so go back to college because we're, again, we were in college exact same time when I was in college, bro, I was playing Xbox, <laughs> dreaming about being a rock star, trying to make a rec get a record deal. Uh, and that didn't quite pan out, but you have this vision for writing. So I get maybe your, your computer science passion and you, you're in school for that, but why writing? Why did you pursue a book deal at that age? And how did you get a book deal with Random House at 21? Yeah, I and mean, the writing came actually, it was a little bit serendipitous. So so my freshman year, I went to Dartmouth. So I went to a, an Ivy League school where one of the big sports at these schools uh, in typical Ivy League fashion is crew. It's rowing. And I was rowing for Dartmouth in my freshman year because I come from a public school. I didn't know anything about rowing, uh, but I was tall and uh, could fit could make lightweight weight if I cut. And I had been a middle distance varsity sprinter in high school. So I had the right legs. I had the right quick twitch muscles for it. So I got really into rowing and I was pretty good at it. I was a walk on, but I was rowing with the recruits and, and that's what I was doing. And then I developed a congenital heart condition. So something I was just born with, had no idea about it. Halfway through the season, bam, is a rapid tachycardia that would hit. Uh, and I'm no longer a rower, right? <laughs> Basically you know, fickle wow. finger of fate. This is the worst case scenario for that sport. And so I was flailing around a little bit after my freshman year. Uh, what did I, what did I want to do with this extracurricular activity? And I don't know exactly what it was that pushed me here, but I said, I think I want to try writing, you know, nine 11 had happened between my freshman and, and sophomore year. And so I think one of the first things I wrote was an op-ed for about that for the, the student newspaper. Then I just kept writing op-eds for them uh, and then I started working for the humor magazine and I became a columnist for the newspaper. Right? I did a humor column, right? So I was doing a human call, humor mm. column for the paper. And then I started writing at the humor magazine. I was pretty good at it and ended up actually the editor of that magazine, the, the Dartmouth Jack-O-Lantern by, by the time I graduated. So I just sort of fell into writing. So I was writing. It just, that's what took up my extracurricular energy. The book came actually out of a dare. Um, I had been an entrepreneur. <laughs> I had been an entrepreneur in high school during the dot-com boom. You remember that from when we were in high school. Oh, uh, yeah. I had been a teenage business owner because we were dumb back then. And we didn't know the first tech <laughs> boom. We're like, oh, this is great. The fact that you're 17 means you must be brilliant. I, okay, we're not so dumb anymore. <laughs> but back then, you could get away with it. Um, so I was really used to coming into college, advice books, time management book, business advice books, because I was running a business yeah. when I was a teenager. And I was wow. in New York. I was hanging out. I remember it. It was at the... Uh, 
the what's it called like the Russian Samsovar. There used to be this midtown Russian vodka bar that that used to be in TV shows back then. I was hanging out with an entrepreneur friend of mine, and I was talking about how you know there's no good advice books for college students. They're all written so cheesily. You know, it's all the naked yeah. roommate and major in success. And it's like, you know, college students take themselves very seriously. Um, someone should write these like a business book. And he dared me. He's like, well, you do it. And, and so he gave me that dare. That was in my, my junior year. And so I wow. called up an agent who was a family friend and said, uh, I am not trying to pitch you. Actually, she was a fiction agent. So it was like, look, I'm not trying to pitch you. I want to pick your brain. How would someone yeah. my age get a book deal to write a book like that. And she walked me through, here'd be all the problems. All right. So if, if you were to find a book deal, you'd have yeah. to get over this object, this and this. And she laid out how it would have to happen. She's like, look, you're going to have to do more writing on this topic for publication. You're going to probably, if you can need to do a lot of these interviews in advance, because they're going to want to see what the chapters would be. They're going to demand a lot of writing samples and say, great, A, B, C. I did it. Took about a year, went out there, pitched the book very targeted. I knew exactly what I would have to do to get that book deal as a 21 year old. And, uh, it worked. We're off to the races. That's amazing. So I love it because you, that's fascinating for a couple of reasons. One entrepreneur first didn't quite know that love how you were seeing a problem that needed to be solved. That's an entrepreneur thing where like, this is, they should be writing books like this. Um, and I love how you had an idea of what college students are actually like, because you were the target market in a way, you're, and, or you were about to be the target market. You're like, hey, college students take themselves seriously. Why isn't anyone addressing that? So, so much there to understand your messaging. I mean, that makes sense with a highly targeted book. Do you, my, my question for you, because that's the book, How to Win at College, right? Yep. My question for you then is, how do you go, you've got this book, How to Win at College, and then you've, your message has expanded, right? And, and how do you get into social media? How do you get into deep work? How do you get into like the attention capital, digital minimalism? Like I, I, to me, I see a thread. They all seem connected. But as an author, like, did you have to have a certain amount of success with book A or book B to then get the freedom to expand your repertoire, so to speak? Like, what, what does that look like for an author who is lucky enough to land their first book deal and get that first book? Did you ever feel like I'm going to have to write about – I have to write to college students forever? Like, was that a thing? Yeah. I mean, I was – it's a good question because I was incredibly intentional about this. You know, so I wrote – I wrote How to Win at College. And by the way, if you, if you find an old business book called How to Be CEO, uh, that was the motivation for How to Win at College. I said I'm going to – it was a book of short contrarian advice for recent graduates or something like this. And I, I said I'm going to do that exact format, short contrarian advice, uh, but for college. Because that was How to Win at College. I wrote that my senior year. At that point, if I had gone back to Random House and said, great, now my next book is Deep Work, no go. They're going to publish it. 21 years old. Like, who can, why, why, you know, your writing skills not there. You're not the right person. I mean, the formula for nonfiction books is uh, it has to be an idea that there's a big audience that, that's going to say, I have to have it. And two, you have to be the right person to write it. You've got to have this. I, I was a 21 year old about to graduate college. So what I did is, okay, uh, let me push myself to the next possible level. So how to win at college was mm -hmm. short contrarian chapters. I did that on, on, on purpose um, because it was going to be easier to write. So it's easy myself in, right? Two-page chapters. So right away, while I was still at Dartmouth, I sold the next book, which was How to Become a Straight-A Student. And I did all the research while I was still at Dartmouth. 
And my, my goal there is, okay, let me write a book now that's normal chapters. I'm going to stretch myself. Still aimed at students. It still makes complete sense for me. Uh, we just did the same deal twice, you know, um, not trying to, not trying to mm-hmm. like stretch or find a lot of money or whatever. Uh, at the time, my, an- my, my editor, Ann Campbell, I really enjoyed. She was really helping my writing. And so I pitched that. Like, okay, now I'm going to go from short contrarian chapters to make sure that I have in my toolbox real chapters. Like you would have in a normal book. Okay, this is about time management, yeah. and it's a you know 20-page chapter. And so then I wrote that right away. So no break. Uh, so those two books, those two books come out. Then I went through a training period. It was at this point that it was clear to me I want to write books like Deep Work and Digital Minimalism, World Without Email. I wanted to write idea nonfiction books at the front table at Barnes & Noble that are reviewed in the major papers, bestsellers. And I said, okay, how do I do that? Right. How do I do that? Because, again, even after how to become a straight A student, now I'm 23. Again, I can't pitch deep work. I went through a period of training. I began to actually take articles in the style that I wanted to do. So I was taking like Malcolm Gladwell articles from The New Yorker. I was taking Clive Thompson articles from New York Magazine. I was taking Michael Pollan and I would break them down and try to understand how they were structured. And then I would pitch articles to semi-competitive venues where I would then try to work on those formats. And I was writing for an online magazine mm. at the time called Flack. And I liked it because it was they would reject it if they didn't like the idea and they would edit it. And and I would try different styles with each of these articles. So it was all very systematic. And then I got to my third book was the pivot point for me. So I still had not earned a right to write a general idea nonfiction book. I was too young. I just didn't have I didn't have a presence in journalism. So we pitched my third book uh uh, and it, it became how to become a high school superstar. It had originally been pitched to be uh, called the Zen valedictorian and all about sort of the relationship between stress and success. And, and they narrowed it down. Okay, mm. whatever. Uh, same deal as the other books, no more money, whatever. But it was my Trojan horse. I said, okay, mm. this I am going to write this student book 100% like the type of uh, hardcover idea books I want to write uh, in the way I've been training for the last few years. Right. So I was a grad kind of later in my grad student program at this point serendipitously at the same time this was the the financial crisis was gearing up and uh, penguin merged with random house and, and it was heads were rolling so my editor my my old editor had left my new editor was fired the editor after her was fired it it, it passed down to like five editors and by the time it got to the final wow. editor who I think was the, you know, dog walker for the assistant of one of the original editors. <laughs> right. they, they, left. Yeah, they had no idea who I was or what I had sold them or what the book was supposed to be. I had complete freedom. And so then I wrote this book ostensibly about college admissions that reads like a Malcolm Gladwell book. I mean, I'm talking about uh, theories and ideas and counter-signaling theory and looking at what we can learn from the evolution of peacock feathers and what it has to do with applications and <laughs> the failed simulation effect. And I was profiling, you know, students in journalistic ways. And, and it was a really cool book that was all training grounds, right? Um, and so that's when I, I had to make the hard decision. Do I leave the comfort zone of students? Because at that point, I was one of the most successful authors talking to students. My blog, Study Hacks, was very popular. Uh, I had a yeah. great voice. I was like this highly trained academic who wrote these these sort of classic student books, and I was very safe there. I was speaking at major colleges, and I really remember going through that process of having to decide uh, it is going to be weird and unnatural to shift to a different topic, but if I don't, I'm going to be stuck, and I don't. I'm at the ceiling here, right? There. I mean, I, I can probably yeah. extract some more money out of this market, but like, I'm, this is I'm at the ceiling, and I made the choice. Uh, I'm going to shift the next natural thing is going to be career advice. And I did a 50-50 split 
I'm now going to 50-50 split my writing for my newsletter and blog between career stuff and the student stuff so I wouldn't lose my audience altogether. And that led to the idea, so good they can't ignore you. Uh, you know, went to auction, $200,000 deal, my first you know, hardcover book that was going to actually be released and reviewed, and that was the transition. And so it was a 10-year, very intentional, very intentional process and very scary when I made the change. I really appreciate you sharing all that, Cal. That's that's so helpful and so honest and linear. It's interesting. A lot of ways it parallels my own story coming from having a blog and a YouTube channel and a business geared around recording music and being the music guy in this weird little audio niche and kind of reaching a ceiling there, but wanting to talk about business and talk about online business and content creation and all these things and having this urge to have another message that my current audience probably wouldn't jive with and feeling like my identity was so wrapped up in that space and having those same fears of how do I, if I don't talk about this other passion, I'll suffocate and die. I had uh, a friend, Ramit Sethi, who's a really, he's another New York Times bestselling author and just and a good dude. I was talking to him like, hey, give me some advice here. And he had said, you know, it's like the airplane. If you don't you don't put on your own oxygen mask first, you're not gonna be able to help anybody else. So if, if you're gonna die not talking about this other thing, you're gonna be no good to anybody. So that I did 50-50 for the last three years and have slowly transitioned now just into the entrepreneurship space. And it is, it's been like a, an identity crisis. Like, will people accept me? Will people say, you're supposed to be the audio guy? And I'm sure you felt that. You're supposed to be the student uh, person to go into career. And it, I think that's hard on the outside. Maybe people look at you and they, they don't see what's you know your other ideas they don't see your you're an intentional planner i don't know if you do the strength finders test but you sound like a futurist at least to me uh but you you, know, you see where things could go and what's possible and where you want to go they don't see that they just see the books you publish so they're looking back at your last three books um that i bet that was really really challenging did you did you have a hard time with the publisher though convincing them that you wanted to make this change or was so good they can't ignore you? Was that like, had you teed them up well, be like, hey, here's where I wanna go and I think there's a market for this and did you have enough you know, people as allies to help you make that transition internally? Uh, no, they kicked me out. So, so no, it was not, it was not smooth. Um, hey, by the way, shout out to Ramit. I've known Ramit forever. Uh, so it's always always good to see, <laughs> I see him. I've That's known awesome. him since like 2004 or something. Um, no, so I, I was, so I was at Penguin Random House at this point making this transition, the proposal for So Good They Can't Ignore You was originally titled Don't Follow Your Passion. And we brought it to one of the big, mm. I mean, I had to leave the imprint I was at because it was more student focused. We went to the, the big imprint there at Crown and said, okay, here's our, our big idea. And the, the yeah. head of the imprint said, I would never, these are exact words, I would never publish a book with that title. And so, okay, wow. we have to leave. Random House, Penguin Random House now. So we, we, we left you know left Penguin Random House and brought it out there. Um, but it hit a chord at, at Hachette. There was a, an editor over there who, who liked it and, and, and offered, at least to me at the time, like said what I thought was you know really some, some serious money for it. Um, but it was really hard. You know, it, the thing, though, is if we look at other creative fields, this type of thing that, that have long – so what we need is creative fields where there's a long arc and a lot of variety in the execution. So if you look at, you know, musician, well, musicians is actually not a bad one. Musicians, we look at actors, for example, musicians or actors or novelists, creative fields mm. where there's long careers and a lot of variety in, in how that art form can be uh, executed. There's a lot of types of music. There's a lot of type of movies. There's a lot of type of novels. 
this is what we're used to, right? There's uh, these phases of their career where, okay, this actor, when they were young, were doing these type of movies, and then they shifted, and then they, they found the niche in these type of movies. I mean, uh, there's a big difference between Liam Neeson of the Taken ages, the Taken era versus Liam Neeson in the Love Actually era. I mean, obviously, there's a, you know, Adam Sandler in his post SNL days is quite different yeah. than Uncut Gems. I mean, actress Tom Hanks went through this. Uh, all the major actors, yeah. Tom Cruise went through this. So we're used to that. They were used to it with novelists. You know, if you follow literary novelists in particular, genre novelists might just do the same thing again and again. But you follow, you know, let's follow Michael Chabon or something. There's this sort of comic book era. There's this, we're used to it. Right. And, and so I think those of us that are in these uh, content creation that maybe nonfiction writing or especially if it overlaps new stuff like new media, like YouTube, like podcasting, we're not as used to it yet. But if we look to those other worlds, mm. we should actually absolutely expect that you go through phases and then you do scary transitions and then you go through, you, you know, mm. you go through another phase. Um, so after so good, I did this phase of uh, deep work, digital minimalism, a world without email. This is my tech and culture trilogy. I said, okay, I'm now a yeah. professor. I'm a computer scientist at, at, at a good institution. I should probably, um, I should probably focus for a while on tech and culture, something that makes sense for a technologist to be writing about. And, and I wrote that trio of books, and we really marketed them, starting with digital minimalism, as here's a professor, an academic who's thinking these big thoughts about culture, and it really helped, and it really. Uh, yeah. gained traction. It got us coverage in all the major places. It, it, it elevated my writing to a new level of seriousness. Now I'm probably going to transition and not be writing about tech and culture. And it's scary again. And whatever I transition to next yeah. will be, that'll be another arc, this sort of post 10 year exploratory arc. I'm in now, whereas those three books were like my, I'm a professor trying to get 10 year period. That's the way I think it unfolds, but it's scary every time it happens, especially when you have dips and certain books do better than others. Um, it's not emotionally. Easy. I know. I appreciate you sharing that. I can't imagine. It takes a lot of guts. Um, I don't know why we think of authors, I mean, as just robots. Like, I think of authors as robots in the sense that, like, I just see, you know, like your books on my shelf and, or in my Kindle or both. And I see the books and you see them as these, like, stoic, like, yeah, that's that author. He or she is smart. That's why they're published. They have a good message, to, like, but they don't have emotions. They're not human beings that are scared to make transitions. Or even the book that did well might have been almost never published and gone through so many, you know, rejections and all that kind of stuff. You don't see the emotional roller coaster before, during, or after. So I appreciate you sharing that. That makes a lot of sense. Do you feel now that you have though the freedom? Um, with the acclaim that your publishers are like, hey, yeah, this guy is going to sell books that you can explore other territories with a little bit more of a longer leash. <laughs> I mean, I think I can write what I want, uh, but it doesn't mean that I can demand the price that I want. So, so, I mean, the thing about publishing is very, it's price sensitive, right? And and it it really varies. Like, well, how well did your last book do? How does this compare to that book? And if one, you know, this book doesn't do as well, then you're going to get you know less for this book. And and it matters. Because one of the things I've learned in publishing is the the strongest indicator of interest a publisher will put into your book is how much they paid. Uh, the the way they talk to you when you're selling the book, the energy of the editor, the ideas, like that's all great. But my experience, having been all over, all over the different amounts of money you get paid for books, is that if they paid more, they're going to give it more energy. If they paid less, they will give it less. It is the neutral indicator of how much time and energy that publisher is going to allocate to your book. And so it, it's kind of non-trivial. So if you, if you really zag 
Well, that money's going to come down and it might be a negative feedback cycle because then they'll pay less attention to the book and then it has less of a chance of doing well. You also have like the Hollywood director effect, you know, uh, coming off of the high of, of Jaws and Close Encounters. Spielberg does 1941, goes over budget. The movie is a disaster. No one likes it. And he was in movie star jail. It's a problem. It could really hurt your career. I mean, fortunately, he had Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, pulled him out of it. But it was a, you know, so you have a bad book. It's kind of fraught, right? I mean, if, if you're a good writer, people will always pay you to write books. But these quanta, this is a little insider baseball here, but I think it's, it's relevant for your show. Yeah. Uh, the quanta of advance payments make a difference in terms of what that experience is going to be like. And it's, it's sort of a, a rich get richer sort of thing. If a lot of money was paid for the book, a lot of energy will go into it, which gives the book a better chance of, of gaining an audience. And if not a lot of money is going to the book, it's now you're going to have to have some sort of your own platform, a slow burn or, or hit some sort of cultural trend. And that's the other thing that, yeah, when you just see the books on the shelf, now here's this author that I like, and I've seen all these books. It's not this smooth sailing. There's, there's ups and downs and fears and advances fell. And this topic was an issue. And they, and I've had all of these, I have had ups and downs many times during my career and we shouldn't downplay. Um, it's difficult. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It makes a lot of sense. So for the author starting out, like for me, like it's, a different story than your story. I didn't think about writing until later in my career. And then I became an educator, a content creator. So in essence, I've been writing blogs for 12 years. I've been shooting YouTube videos, doing podcasts, creating courses. I've been teaching and creating. And as a, as a consumer of books, there's something magical about, you know, holding, holding a book in your hand. And like, there's, there's transformation that can happen. I can look at every book on my shelf and say, that changed my life in this way, that changed my life in this way, I changed my perspective in this way. Uh, and a couple of years ago, I'm like, I wanna do the same thing. I, I want to create something that helps somebody, even though I could just keep blogging about it or doing a podcast about it, I wanna put it in a different format. I think there's something unique about a book. So all that to say, I'm moving into this space, our mutual connection friend, Jordan Rayner, I, I bugged him I'm like, hey man, you're a best-selling author. Like, how do I put together a proposal? Same thing like you said, I, I don't coach me in this. What should I be doing? Um, and going through this process, had a lot of publishers say no. Most of them said no. They're like, eh. Uh, they kept saying, there's nothing new here, you know? So, and that's hard to hear. Like, well, I, you know, the way I think about it might be new. So you're trying to gauge the market. But also, even before the proposal, the question was, and I had for Jordan, it was, I have a lot of things I'm interested in talking about, and I haven't started my author career. So what do you go with first? And so the book that I'm writing now, uh, that's publishing soon is how to, how to get paid for what, you know, okay. That's what I'm, I'm known for. That's what I've built the last 12 years. So it, it's a logical next step for me, not the most exciting thing to write about, but it's why I mean, sense, I teach about it all the time, but I'm already, I'm more interested in the nuances within that, but it's the most, you know, marketable, obvious, like getting people to even be aware of this non-traditional form of work, creating content online. You don't have to have a massive following. You don't have to be something glamorous, but you can share what you know and monetize it in a way that can make part-time, full-time living. And so it was an interesting process for me to try to reduce myself to what messages do I have that have value in the marketplace um, that I am interested in writing about and thinking through, and this is my fear, Cal's like, did I pick the right first book, right? Did I pick the right first book idea? Um, obviously we got a publisher to say yes, and they're excited about it. But like your fear is, I hope this does well enough so that I get to write book two or book three, whatever those may be. Yeah. Um, so if there's other people, I'm getting to my question, I guess, if there's other people listening to the show, watching this saying, yeah, I want to start getting into writing. Um, 
how do you think about that first book? If you're going to pitch it to a publisher or if you're going to self-publish and you have a bajillion ideas, what should we be thinking about for picking that first book to at least share with the world and try to get some traction in the author space? Well, two things have to come together. First, it has to be a topic, if we're talking nonfiction, where the publisher is going to think there is a non-trivial audience for which they're going to have the sense, I need to read this book when they see it. And then two, you have to be the right person to write it. And so first books, just like with me and, and just like what you're doing here, uh, is almost always about finding that perfect match to that second point. So it's actually the right topic probably for you to be writing your first book about. That's how you open the door to publishing. And now once you've written a book and you've done a good job at it, then then you can basically keep writing books, right? Now, the success of the books is what's going to dictate the money and therefore energy that goes into it. Um, but it's there's a pipeline that has to be filled. And getting into the pipeline is the hard part. It is really if you if someone comes into the pipeline and does not produce something that is at the level, you know, it is a publishable book. We can put it out there. We can be proud it's out there. It's a real problem. So that's why there's such scrutiny about trying to get into this pipeline. Once you're in there and you published a book and it was fine, it was a real book and people liked it and, and, and it had an audience. It's like, okay, great. Now, you know, Graham is a known commodity. He's someone who can provide stuff that we can trust for the pipeline. So once you're in the pipeline, you can keep producing books. And then the game, like it was with me, is saying, okay, now that they're going to let me keep producing books, I'm going to start thinking about how do I move these towards a place where I can uh, have the best chance of, of taking a big swing. So I think you know, you found your perfect example of it, just like I was with How to Win at College. It was basically the only book I could write uh, in that situation. I mean, the only thing I had going for me is that I was a college student who had really good grades. I was like, okay, that is the one book. <laughs> that is the one book I could write, right? You have helped a lot of people on exactly that topic and have a following that trust you on exactly that topic. Like, it is the book that you're the right person. You're the right person to write. My advice for people, though, is once they write it, once they're writing is like a huge trap, especially in pragmatic nonfiction, is to fall into the trap of writing for the sake of writing. Like, oh, I have this scary challenge. I have mm -hmm. to produce 60,000 words. And so um, I'm going to see it like a checklist. I need chapters and subchapters that all seem like reasonable content. Like, these are reasonable points. I now have enough points to fill the book. And now workmanlike, I'm going to fill in these points. And, and there I have a book. A book that's just writing for the sake of writing. Yes, technically, these are all points that relate to this topic. And, you, and they're written in correct sentences don't sell very well for the most part. What actually has to happen is you have to put yourself into the mind of the reader and be like, I have to find a way that I'm going to touch something in that reader that's going to get them excited and they're going to, they're going to get into it. I'm going to literally create an emotion in that reader. So like for your book, you're not selling information about uh, how to get paid for what you know. What you're selling people is that aspirational thrill when they imagine a life in which they have this extra autonomy and they're 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 at home half the time. They're in their cabin because of this extra income and it's a, a, a lifestyle design style. You're selling them a better life. And so when you're thinking about the book, it's not how do I fill in the next ten thousand pages. It's how in the next or ten thousand words. How in the next ten thousand words do I get a reader fired up? And then you're working backwards yeah. from that goal. So incredibly empathetic. A lot of mind reading of the hypothetical reader, I think, is at the core of then producing a book that has a chance of sparking something. Yeah, I love that you said that. I mean, that's so that's the same thing that we're we're doing in my space, creating an online course. Everyone says, oh, make an online course and sell it and you can make money and endless profit. And you have to create a course that people care about. And to do that, you have to understand who your target market is and what are they struggling with and what are their desires. And that leads you to not only make 
a course on the right topic, but then even structure that course in such a way that if you convince them to buy it, that they're going to be glad they did and they can actually get results from it, which only better improves your brand. So that, that makes so much sense. Um, you, you mentioned something, though, that getting into the pipeline is hard. Getting a publisher not only to sign off on you with the, the book deal, but then if the, they publish the book and it sells a few copies and people are happy with it, that that's a big hurdle. That makes a lot of sense. Would you say that you are then for traditional publishing versus self-publishing because of that, that you almost get that sort of blessing from people who matter? Or can you break into this with self-publishing? I think self-publishing has become a lot less relevant with the rise of alternative independent medias. I mean, in some sense, if you're trying mm -hmm. to directly reach your audience, what you can do with a podcast, what you can do with YouTube, et cetera, is probably more powerful then, okay, here's a, a create space book or something. Now, economically speaking, when it comes to heart, like an actual physical book, the economic advantage of self-publishing is not as big as people think. Uh, first of all, it's expensive to produce a book and sell it, a physical book, and the margins you get is not necessarily that much better than the hardcover royalty. And then the logistics is huge, uh, trying to deal with suppliers. I mean, Amazon simplifies this if you just want to go through Amazon, but then editors and copy editors and cover design. So, uh, a lot of what you're paying for traditional publishers is all that's taken care of at a very high level. Uh, and you're still getting a reasonable margin on that book compared to what you would be getting. Electronic is a little different. I know there's a whole world of, of people who do Kindle Direct. All right, that's a lot cheaper. You write a book, you copy edit it. It just goes through the Kindle platform. Um, but my sense is if, if writing is the, a, a media in which you want to express yourself, do it through a publisher. Uh, if you want to go direct to an audience, you're the, – Everything, audience growth, economics, impact, you have more things in your favor on YouTube, in podcast, etc., than you do with having a book on uh, Kindle Direct or something like this, uh, something that people can download to their Kindle. Because they're, they're, the book is going to be better with a the publisher. They're going to push you. You're going to be just writing for editing uh, is going to make it much better. The, the, the physical property is going to be great. There's going to be all the imprinture and benefit you get from being with a publisher. And then finally... Uh, if it's if a publisher doesn't buy it, then it probably isn't good enough. The idea is not good enough anyways, right? Like if publishers want to fill their pipeline. So if they're not buying it, it means either the idea is just not that good of one or your writing's not where it needs to be to be at that professional level. So you probably shouldn't be publishing the book anyway. So I, I tend to be more of a traditionalist there. If you're going to write, then write through the traditional publishers. And if you want to make do impact or grow an audience or make money, you're going to do probably a lot better with these newer, more exciting uh, media. So I think your balance is perfect, right? I mean, you have the, the, the YouTube presence, for example, is very powerful. Your platforms are powerful. Those are the dynamic platforms right now. And when, you add, when you're adding writing to your portfolio, you're saying, if I'm going to add writing, the most effective way to do that is it's with a publisher. And there's, you know, hard copies you can order and come and it has a nice dust jacket and it's been edited and I've been pushed on it and they cut a lot of things. It's been copy edited and the whole thing. A hundred percent. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's exactly why I wanted to go the traditional publishing route and, and take a chance, you know, that somebody would sign me, you know, I, I needed to get a book deal, but that was what I wanted to work on because I can click publish and be on YouTube or have my podcast or my blog up instantly with no gatekeeper, which doesn't bode well because maybe it's crap, you know, and I do everything by myself. I am my own boss. So I have my own internal like mechanisms for keeping my quality there, but there's no one really telling me, Hey Graham, that's not really that great. It could be better. There's no one pushing me. And so when I thought about writing a book, not only did it seem daunting because I haven't written something that long, hadn't written 60,000 words, but it was more of like, 
I could write 60,000 words, but are they any good? And I want people who know what a good nonfiction book is, in my case, uh, in the business space to to look at it and say, hey, good idea. We need to cut these chapters or reorganize this or this is unclear or, gosh, I had my editor. Just, I was going back over the manuscript with her last month. She was highlighting the things I keep repeating myself. And there was a phrase I kept repeating that was so ridiculous uh, and I, it's slipping my mind right now, but I was like, I, I didn't even know I said that phrase. I had repeated it like five times in a chapter. She's like, this is not really needed here. Yeah. So I just wanted the team. I really wanted the team to make it better, make me better. And so I think that's how you contrasted. If you want to just self-publish, go with the digital content. Why, why in a way, write a self-published book? That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I didn't get into this for the money as much as I got into it for the challenge of it. Uh, and also to break into a space where maybe if someone saw me, well, anybody can have a YouTube channel, but if he has a published book, maybe he has something to say here. And that's, that's an interesting challenge for me is like, I, I've built a business. I built a life. Why write a book? Well, I, I kind of want the respect of people who are like, eh, anybody's got a, anybody can have a podcast, mm -hmm. which is true. Yes. And a lot of podcasts are great, yeah. but that to me is the difference. And it makes yeah. you smarter. Writing is thinking. And so when your writing is pushed to be a lot better, your thinking on that topic is a lot better because when you're podcast or YouTube and you can be a lot more discursive all over the place, but yeah, think about the clarity uh, when you have an editor you're using this phrase all the time. This doesn't make sense. Where does this come from? It's a lot more precise. My, my initial issues is I used, I started sentences with so all the time in my very first manuscript. I, because I was used to academic writing, I didn't do contractions. So I would say do not instead of don't or cannot instead <laughs> of can't. My editor was very nice about it. I, was like, I think you need to use contractions uh, for my second book. They said, look, you can't just give uh, advice. You kind of need to, we need to hear about people. You need to go and like talk to people and do some journalism. We need to hear about students using these and what worked. And that was a new, that was a tool I didn't have in my toolbox. I mean, all this stuff was pushing me to be better. The only random thing I'm going to, I'm going to add is like for the audience thinking about writing books is don't think about it. Like, how am I, am I going to be able to write 60,000 words? And, and my analogy here is, let's say you're like, I want to get in really good shape for, you know, next summer, I want to, you know, whatever, get, get stronger. You don't do the math and say, man, am I really going to be capable of doing 15,000, you know, bent squats this year? No, you, what you really say is, am I going to be capable of going to the gym for 30 minutes, three times a week? And you think about that challenge. Like, I think I could carve out that time and stick to it. That's the right way to think about a book. It's not about, can I, can I write 60,000 words? It is, am I going to be able to have a discipline of writing three mornings a week? And during that period, whatever I'm writing that period, trying to make it as good as possible. And then just repeat on autopilot. So I, I, I think writing should be thought about like the gym. Don't count up the total mm. amount of times you're going to the gym. Look at the typical week and say, can I integrate this discipline into my life? Now, the flip side of that is when you see it that way, then you get something like my situation. You know, I've written seven books now. Um, the reason I have is that I just decided early on that like going to the gym, I just have this discipline where I like to be, most days of the week doing some very intense writing. What's changed is what that writing's aimed at. So it's producing this book and that book and this article, but uh, I just mm. want to be someone who stays in shape, intellectually speaking. Mm. The issue is when people think about it, like, oh, how can I, am I really going to write 60,000 words? You get to what I think is the death spiral for pragmatic nonfiction is when you hear people say, man, I had to just take six weeks off and do nothing but write. That's not going to produce yeah. a book. That's going to produce nonsense. Uh, a good book has to be produced mm. Uh, a large number of small intense sessions at a time spread out over a year so that everything you write is the best you can write 
and it's just a little at a time. When I hear someone say, uh, all I did was write for six weeks, I'm like, that's writing for the sake of writing. That thing is going to be disposable, mm. right? It's just you trying to fill pages with technically correct sentences and bullet points. So I like that gym analogy for thinking about the challenge of writing a big book. Yeah, I like that. To, to play devil's advocate, though, would you say, though, that maybe some of those people taking six weeks off or doing some deep work for six weeks and like that is the way that they can ensure that they're focused and so they're all there are is thinking about the book and said so it is more cohesive. Is that just a personality thing? Do you think? No, I think it's just, it's too much, too much cognitive effort is involved. Right. So, I mean, if, if you think about, um, if you're writing a book, let's say over a year and you know, you're, you're doing something like 10 hours a week, then, you know, now you're up to something like 600, 600 really intense hours of working. Um, it's very difficult to get, 600 hours of intense work in six weeks, you would have to do hundred hour weeks and you can't do hundred hour weeks thinking really intensely about, sure. about a book. So I think it's really just a math sure. number. Um, it, the best writing requires a lot of concentration. Concentration is hard. So it has to happen in relatively small bursts. And yeah. so the only way to make that add up, I think is to, to spread it out. Just like I, I can't spend eight hours a day at the gym for four weeks to try to, you know, really get sure. my biceps strong. I'm just going to wear out for, yeah. my muscles. Yeah, no, that's a great analogy. Uh, what, what does, when you hit the New York times bestseller list, like, was that for you a specific goal? You did say you had a map of like, Hey, I want to write this type of nonfiction. I want to be a bestseller. Were you thinking specifically like, yeah, I want to be on the New York times bestseller list. And if so, when you hit that, or you first heard Hey, from your publisher, we made it, we hit it. What did it feel like? And, and what does it mean to you? If anything, I've talked to people who say like, Hey, it was never a goal of mine. It just happened. And I've talked to people who said like, yeah, this was, it was a big sort of like you did it kind of thing. What, what does that mean for you? Um, it, it was, it was mixed, right? So my, my first book to break out was deep work and it didn't break out right away. It was one of these books that caught on over time and then just kept selling and kept selling and the sales went up. There's never any week in which it was, uh, bestseller status. Deep Work has never been a, a New York Times bestseller, but it's, it sold a ton of copies, like more copies than most bestsellers um, ever do. So by the time I, Digital Minimalism was my first New York Times bestseller, Deep Work did hit the, the journal list, but um, a Digital Minimalism was my first New York Times bestseller. At that point, though, I'd had a book that had sold a ton of copies. So it was sort of a weird experience because it kind of would rather, the real goal is that first thing. It might take a while, and all my books do, but is selling a lot of books over time. The bestseller list I was less familiar with, and what it what the the reality of the New York Times bestseller list is, um, it's about pre-orders, right? So everything you pre-order counts towards your first week of sales, and you really get a, a translation of how big is your platform. Okay, so so um, basically, my email list between Deep Work and Digital Minimalism got big enough that pre-selling to my email list was sufficient to cross the mark and you need to get somewhere between five to 10,000 copies pre-sold um, to make the list, you know? And, and so once I realized that, I mean, I was very proud of it because it, it, the New York Times bestseller list also requires that when they sample independent stores that your book is selling well, unlike the journalist, it's not yeah. just raw sales. So it actually has to be a book that, that is catching people's attention. Um, but it, a lot of it comes down to uh, converting, you know, converting platforms. So then I was excited to see it. Um, but then that book fell off that list the next week because we didn't have the pre-orders. It has gone on to sell a ton of copies, but none of those weeks was that book back on the, on the best-selling list. And, mm. and so, uh, there's sort of two different 
experiences with the list, right? There's the experience of, I have a big launch because people know me, I have an audience and we can get a lot of people to pre-order this book and it's great and it feels good. It means that like the book caught the attention. Then there's the other experience, which is a book catches on in a very broad public way and rides a wave on the bestseller list for a while. That it's a, it's a James Clear situation, right? It's a Mark Manson situation, right? right? And that I haven't had before, even though I've had books that have sold tons of copies, I've never had that experience. So I see those as two different experiences, the launch week bestseller experience and the, whoa, you hit the zeitgeist. And now for the next 10 weeks, you're going to be on the bestseller list. I I think that latter one, I'm still pursuing that. And I don't, you know, I don't know how much you can control on that and how much is luck and how much is the book or what have you, but I can't even tell you what that experience is. like. If you talk to someone like James, you talk to someone like Mark um, about what that ride is like, you know, that I think is really crazy. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. I, I appreciate you sharing that and appreciate you sharing your experience. And I, I do think uh, you have what all authors are shooting for, which is a message and messages that are worth listening to. And you have, you have thoughts on things that really get people to change their lives in a healthy way. And uh, I appreciate your work. I appreciate all your books and your willingness to communicate important things in a way that speaks to the current narrative of everyday modern people, uh, both young and old. And you, I think you've been uniquely chosen to, to write about these, these messages for a broad spectrum of people. It's pretty cool what you're doing. Congratulations on all your success. Uh, Guys, check out the latest book, A World Without Email, uh, and the Deep Questions podcast if you want to continue to dive into more of what Cal is doing. So, Cal, thank you for your time today and your generosity. I really appreciate it. Well, no, thanks for having me. It's nice to have an excuse to talk shop about writing. Uh, After doing, you know, you do so many interviews about what you're writing about. This was this was a welcome change of pace. I love nerding out about these topics, and I'm excited. I'm excited for the, I'm excited for the book. Who, who's the publisher, by the way? Uh, ben Bella. Oh, sure. Yeah, I know, I know Ben Bella. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So Matt Holt, uh, yeah, Matt Holt was with Wiley for a while, and now he's the editor in chief of Ben Bella. So he uh, he grabbed it up, and I really enjoy working with him. Yeah. No, Ben Bella is cool. I love their model. Yeah. So that's great. Well, I'm excited. So I'm excited for uh, to see when your book comes out. Well, I appreciate. it. I'll get you a copy, man, and uh, hopefully I'll be on your track. Excellent. Good. I look forward to seeing you on that bestseller list. Thank you, Cal. Appreciate it, man. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Cal. He was amazing. Be sure to check out his latest book, A World Without Email, or check out his Deep Questions podcast. And again, if you want to support me on my journey to become a New York Times bestselling author myself, go pre-order my book. Just go to grahamcochran.com slash book. You can pre-order it wherever you like, but take the receipt there. I'm giving over $100 of bonuses away if you just support me by pre-ordering the book. It would mean the world to me. And hey, maybe buy a few copies for some friends. Anybody that you know that wants to find creative work, doing something online, meaningful, monetizing their skills, their passions, and their knowledge. It's all gonna be in my book, How to Get Paid for What You Know, drops in March of 2022. And I would love it if you would just support me by making a simple pre-order today. It's all at grahamcochran.com slash book. Thanks again for listening to this episode of How to Become a New York Times Bestselling Author. We'll see you on another episode real soon.